And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. This is the show all about Marvel Comics' Daredevil. Yep, totally devoted to Daredevil, even when we're talking about Spider-Man. That's right, we are in week three of The Death of Gene DeWolf, covering a seminal Spider-Man story written by Peter David featuring Daredevil. That's right, sometimes I cover Spider-Man, but only when Daredevil is a relevant part of the story and relevant discussion is generated by it. When we left off last week, police captain Jean DeWolf was shot to death in her bed by a killer called the Sin Eater. Spider-Man teamed up with Sergeant Stan Carter to try to find the killer with no leads, while our own Matt Murdock encountered the Sin Eater when he killed Matt's friend, Judge Horace Rosenthal. Spider-Man tried to pursue the Sin Eater, and when they fought, there was collateral damage when somebody in the crowd was shot by Sin Eater's shotgun, and once again the Sin Eater escaped. Later, at the funerals of DeWolf and Rosenthal, Matt spotted the familiar heartbeat of the Sin Eater, but was too late to alert anyone. And later, the Sin Eater went to a local church and shot a priest in a confessional. So, the Sin Eater's reign of terror continues. Which is exactly where we pick up this week with Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, issue 109. The issue dropped with a December 1985 cover date and has a cover by Rich Buckler and Brett Breeding. It shows Spider-Man standing on a chimney with an unidentified, unconscious man slumping from Spidey's arms. I don't know if I can give you a description that does this cover justice. Yes, that's what's happening on the cover, but it uses black ink blots against a white background to form the main image. There are some red highlights, such as the moon and a tint of red in the Spider-Man costume, which really makes the suit just stand out in a different way. I think the dark red could have worked with this design. And it's a really sharp shade of red, a slight tint of orange, and that's reflected in the moon and the logo. It's not a typical looking Spider-Man cover, it's... Well, it's very Daredevil. The black and white and just the atmosphere it creates is a stifling, humid summer night in the wee hours of the morning, and things are afoot that aren't exactly on the up and up. And I can't help but think with this black and white that it really evokes a feeling of good and evil clashing within one person, specifically Spider-Man, which aligns perfectly with a Ditko philosophy, and that feels right in a certain way. And within this cover is a story entitled The Death of Gene DeWolf Part 3, He Who Is Without Sin, written by Peter David, penciled by Rich Buckler, inked by Brett Breeding. Letters come via Phil Felix, and as all of these stories are, they are reprinted in the still-in-print Death of Gene DeWolf storyline. So picking up with this week's issue, across the city, our cast, Peter Parker, Stan Carter, Reverend Jackson Tolliver, Matt Murdock, and creepy confessional guy, hear the news of the priest's murder from last issue. We also get confirmation that the bystander from Spider-Man and Sin Eater's fight last issue, named Hugo Kelsey, has died. And Peter feels responsible for this. Story of his life, right? 
Do you ever wonder why that is? Why Peter puts so much on his shoulders, Uncle Ben, Gwen Stacy, the Sin Eaters victims? I have. Peter Parker takes a lot of self-blame. And the reason is he sets standards for himself that are impossibly high. I put a lot of thought into this and I realized Peter Parker is a perfectionist. Now, perfectionist mentality, that idea of setting these standards that you can't possibly live up to, often lead to depression, eating disorders, things of that nature. And I can hear what you're saying, Dave, What are you, where are you going with this? Spider-Man has a disorder? Not exactly, just a mentality. Let me furnish my proof. When we meet Peter Parker in Amazing Fantasy number 15, who is this kid? He's an ace student, a doting aunt and uncle just cheering him on, somebody who is so driven by his studies that he sacrifices social standing in a quote-unquote normal childhood. Now, of course, he gets bitten by the spider, gets powers, and what is his first task? Let's take on a huge wrestler. Let's aim for super stardom. Of course, this is the 60s. There is no America's Got Talent. There's no X Factor, no American Idol. Aiming for superstardom was something entirely different. And that's our beginning point. Peter is always striving for that perfect balance between his personal relationships as Peter Parker and his responsibility of being Spider-Man. Two things that are constantly at odds with one another. And he fails. We see him fail again and again and again. We've seen him quit the superhero business and then take it back up a short time later. And he continues to strive for that balance that can not really be achieved. The fact is, in my theory, he can't quit. I wish I knew how to quit you. Not just because of the responsibility, although that is a big part of the puzzle, but because he can never quite accept the idea that this balance is impossible. He believes he can be the high-swinging superhero and a responsible friend, boyfriend, husband, father. And because of that mentality, that perfectionist, that he can achieve anything because he's Spider-Man. He has these great powers. He's Peter Parker. He's incredibly intelligent and driven. Because of that, every failure, whether it's great or small, ends up resting on Peter Parker's shoulders, put there by Parker himself. Because in his mind, he should always be that 15-year-old golden boy. So he takes everything very, very personally. Even if he doesn't show it, it's there. And even Stan Carter points out that if Spider-Man hadn't dodged the Sin Eater's shot, he and the bystander would both be dead. When it comes to Sin Eater's gun, which Stan mentions was bent in the fight, it's a scatter gun. It's going to hit all kinds of things. Spider-Man and the guy, toast. Once I came to the conclusion of Spider-Man as a perfectionist, I appreciated the character that much more. As a kid, you always have these big aspirations, things you're going to aim for. You're going to be a great actor. You're going to be a great musician. And sometimes those dreams are hard to achieve. They require fortitude. Sometimes, let's be honest, luck. And it can be really frustrating when you don't achieve those dreams, those goals. To me, it made Spider-Man that much more human. And it put a lot of things in this storyline in a perfect perspective. So to me, Spider-Man is a perfectionist, continually trying and failing and trying again. Now, elsewhere in this vignette, we have Marla Jameson, J. Jonah Jameson's wife, inviting Betty Brant Leeds, Peter's ex and Ned Leeds' wife, to crash at the Jameson estate while both Jonah and Ned Leeds are at a conference. Remember, I told you to earmark that from last week. This will become important in just a moment. Reverend Tolliver gets some sound bites in about police incompetence. And remember, he was involved in the real-life Atlanta murders in which the police didn't follow every lead. Now, this is showing a slightly different side of Tolliver. We've seen him with a chip on his shoulders, but here he's really enjoying his sound bites. He's toasting himself with a Colt 45 and showing quite a bit of ego. And we have creepy confessional guy. I told you he'd be important. This guy is crying in his cornflakes, and that means he must feel guilty about something, right? We should probably watch that guy. 
Also nestled in the news, Matt Murdock is hearing about a drug dealer, Gerald Jablonski, who beat a rap thanks to a technicality, and he's bragging about the system working. He's walking free. That name, Gerald Jablonski, stood out to me, so I did a Google search. Gerald Jablonski was the name of an indie artist who worked for a magazine called Snarf, not to be confused with the Thundercats character. Jablonski went on to do a well-regarded book called Cryptic Wit. Now, I'm not sure if this name is a coincidence or a wink-wink reference. Now, while that's going on, Matt is hearing this, and he's realizing that once again that beloved justice system has failed, reiterating the theme of the story, or the dividing line that Spider-Man and Daredevil will clash over. We're seeing an unrepentant drug dealer walking the streets because of some small technicality in the system. Yeah, it irritates me, and we do see this in real life as well. Now, Daredevil's upset about that. Spider-Man's just upset about the whole Gene DeWolf thing. He's driven because of that perfectionist mentality. So Spider-Man sneaks, and by sneaks I mean he just barges right in and beats up the bodyguards in Kingpin's office. All in a bid to ask the Kingpin about the Sin Eater, if there's any connection to organized crime. Now, Spider-Man completely fails at the sneaking game. He's trying to creep up on Kingpin, who's dictating a letter, and he almost gets casually blasted with Fisk's cane that shoots lasers. A neat bit of trivia, according to Wikipedia, take that as you will, C.B. Kalish, who is whom Kingpin is dictating a letter to, was a co-worker of Peter David's when David worked in the marketing. What's funny about this scene is Spider-Man gets insult added to near injury. Because Kingpin tells him Daredevil has already been here, asking the same questions. And apparently that's sort of going to be the go-to move, because if something is bad in New York, it must be Kingpin. Actually seems fairly logical to me. But Spider-Man's humility takes a further beating when he learns that he is completely out of line. He's trespassing, and the Kingpin has no stake or motive with the Sin Eater. And once Kingpin puts this reasoning on the table, it makes perfect sense. Priest killers make a city hard to control. Chaos is not what the Kingpin wants. Control, control, control. So to do this, a very public, very brutal slaying of a priest, nah, not in the Kingpin's best interest. And the Kingpin slights Spider-Man's methods because Daredevil was there, and at least he knocked because Matt Murdock is known for his manners. Polite boy, that Matt Murdock. Really what you have here is Spider-Man and Daredevil after the same guy, the same goal, both with a personal stake. Spider-Man is a bit unhinged, he's very angry, he's very brash, and some of that comes from the desperation where Daredevil, however, is driven, just like Peter, but he's detached. Professional detachment, another theme here. So Daredevil's coming about it in a more professional manner, a more analytical, thought-out way. Now both share some emotional overlap in this story, but they're dealing with it very differently, and that's the important part I want to talk about. So let's think about this. Why are they so different? Not only are we looking at profession, we're looking at maybe a difference in age, a difference in experience. If we look back when the two first met, in Amazing Spider-Man number 16, covered in episode 2 of this show, Peter would have been about 16, and Matt in his mid-20s. This is a very different era we're looking at. Peter is now in his mid-20s, and Matt is probably in his 30s. So we have very different perspectives at play here, and that's going to be important. I'm going to discuss this a little bit more as the episode progresses. Now, from the Kingpin's office, we go to Josie's bar. And Matt is there in street clothes to question some of the lowlifes who frequent the place. Again, we're going a, a path of analytical, almost a process, a detached process. 
and Matt makes it a point to note that crashing into the window in full costume, yelling and scaring everybody is about the worst idea ever. So he literally goes in like he's 21 Jump Street in Homeroom. Hey, you guys know where I can score some pot? How about that Sin Eater? And of course, this being Josie's bar, it turns nasty, but Matt handles it well with a controlled show of force. And all of this simmers down, and Matt finds out that, well, surprise, surprise, nobody knows anything. So Matt leaves through the door, and Josie's psyched because the window stayed intact. That is fantastic. That is until... Spider-Man comes crashing through Josie's window, looking for the same information mere moments after Matt walks out. Okay, this is a well-set-up joke. Matt saying crashing through the window, being a worst idea, and then Spider-Man doing so, good laugh. However, maybe adds more to the contrast idea that I'm looking at. Matt is more reserved, Peter's on the edge. To further illustrate Spider-Man's mindset, there is a whole page following this of Spider-Man tracking, threatening, and questioning every thug he can find. He is desperately grasping at straws, total emotional turmoil, total obsession. Sin Eater isn't targeting the same people that your mainstream criminal element would. We have a police captain, a judge, and now a priest, which sounds like a setup for a joke, not a modus operandi. And when you're desperate and obsessed, you do things you shouldn't do. In this case, Spider-Man pays a visit to Gerald Jablonski's place and drags him to a diner filled with the thugs who would want to do him in. After all, Gerald is pretty much turning state's evidence. He's named names. He is a target. And while they're at this diner, Spider-Man pretends to be buddies, making it very loud, very clear that Jablonski's in good with the superheroes. This in turn convinces Jablonski to turn himself in, fixing that little loophole that we saw earlier. So what we see here is Spider-Man crossing a line. Spider-Man's haunted by the collateral damage of his fight with Sin Eater. He's also haunted by the fact that Sin Eater beat him and the fact that he can't catch the killer of his friend, and that guy is out there killing other people. So this is leading Spider-Man to try to fix the system by force. This little bit has nothing to do with the Sin Eater. Jablonski has no connection. Spider-Man doesn't even question him about the Sin Eater. There's nothing here to tie it in. But we have Spider-Man accomplishing something. That perfectionist nature is manifesting itself. He has to do something. He sees that perceived problem with the system. He's going to put a square peg into a round hole. This is an extremely dangerous mindset. Because Spider-Man could cross all kinds of lines at this stage. So from that, with the Jablonski thing over, we move to Peter visiting the Daily Bugle. And the Sin Eater shows up, looking for Jameson. He's there at Peter's workplace, flashing a shotgun, looking for Peter's boss. And Peter uses a typewriter roller to stop him, knocking him in the head. And this happens so fast, and there's no real surprise, but it sets up a power of the press joke. We have Robbie. Again, I love Robbie Robertson. He has no fear. He's a man's man. He's standing up to the Sin Eater. And with this guy captured, we finally get this moment we've been waiting for. Who is the Sin Eater? Let's find out. He unmasks him, and he's revealed to be the confessional guy. I told you we should watch him. And I would have gotten away with it too if it hadn't been for you meddling kids. <laughs> and Peter is elated to have caught the villain. See? Perfectionist. It had to be Peter that caught the Sin Eater. It would not be enough for the Sin Eater to be captured, for his reign of terror and murder to be stopped. It had to be Peter. Is there some ego and hubris to that? Perhaps, but I think it's more rooted in a sort of insecurity. Again, the idea of trying to be that 15-year-old golden boy student doted upon by his family. Now, one thing I don't want you to take away from this episode is sort of that idea that the perfectionism aspect of Spider-Man is a negative. 
it can have negative repercussions, as we saw with Jablonski. However, it's that perfectionist drive that can take Spider-Man from being pinned under tons and tons of impossibly heavy machinery with Aunt May dying in the hospital and Dr. Octopus getting away and pushing through and making that happen. Saving Aunt May, capturing Dr. Octopus, so on, so forth. There is a very strong, positive reverberation from that mentality. It's what keeps Spider-Man going and doing the impossible. The reason I bring it to the forefront is sometimes Spider-Man is confronted by things that even his great power cannot overcome, a responsibility that he can't keep. That's when you run into a wall, such as the Sin Eater. That's why it had to be Peter. This is on him. He should have captured him the first time. He should have stopped him. It is not a messiah complex. I want to be clear on that. A messiah complex would take Peter to a whole other level. If you want a messiah complex Spider-Man, take a look at Superior Spider-Man when Dr. Octopus was in control. Peter's not necessarily looking to be a savior on that grand scale. Peter is simply trying to make sure the responsibilities that he took on, which was a personal responsibility following the death of Uncle Ben, becomes fulfilled. He metaphorically signed on the dotted line, said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to protect these people, and I'm going to maintain a life. And those are tasks that are, to put it lightly, not mutually exclusive. They don't necessarily work together. They're repulsive magnetic waves. So I want to clarify that real quick as we're talking about him capturing the Sin Eater, which should be the end of the story, but it's not. It's not. There's a twist. What a twist! We have Confessional Guy in holding now, who's referred to as Mr. Greg. He's talking to the police about hearing voices that are compelling him, and Spider-Man notes too bad that Stan isn't here to see this. Where is he? Is he still out on the hunt? Now, there's a very big piece of the puzzle here, because Greg is mentioning the voices. He makes a leap that he doesn't remember killing the people, but they are the people that the voices told him to kill. So he must have killed him. That's a very odd leap, don't you think? Well, Daredevil thinks so too, as he walks in the room and this interview is progressing with Daredevil there and he can't, quote-unquote, see the killer, that distinctive heartbeat. Something's wrong. So Daredevil takes Spider-Man aside and says, straight up, this is not the right guy. This ends up being kind of a hard sell for Spider-Man, not just because of that perfectionist nature, the pride of finally capturing the Sin Eater, the relief of having that weight lifted off his shoulders, but it's also another level because he doesn't realize Matt's senses are in effect. He doesn't realize Matt is blind or who Matt is. He doesn't connect the dots that Matt was there when Rosenthal was killed, or how Daredevil could know this, so he's got to take a leap of faith. And of course, Spider-Man was already kind of not seeing the forest for the trees. I mean, Greg's dropping hints, such as the fact that he tried to warn the priest, uh, the idea that Jameson was actually supposed to die at his own home that night, and the fact that Greg tried to get caught in order to stop the madness. It's all there. It doesn't add up. This is not our guy. And that leaves a big question. If this guy isn't it, and he was just a red herring, who is the Sin Eater? <laughs> Spider-Man goes with Daredevil to Greg's apartment, and they find it's actually attached to the real Sin Eater's place, the home of Sergeant Stan Carter. Okay, let's just address this gorilla in the room. Stan Carter is the Sin Eater. That's the big revelation. And there have been a ton of clues. In issue 107, he nonchalantly mentions that he and Spider-Man are viable suspects. And he adds that it is the unobvious nuts you have to watch out for. Also there, there's a moment of symbolism. They share the hot chocolate. Food. Sin Eater. Not the most ostentatious clue, but it is there and it stayed with me as I was reading through this. In issue 108, he knew that Spider-Man had been hit in the face by the Sin Eater, and he's also the one to explain the entire concept of the Sin Eater. He also mentions that his partner was killed, and he got the punks who did it. We don't know what that means that he got them. 
Also, you have a little bit of ego. He lets Spider-Man go to check out Jean's apartment because he knew there were no clues there. He was that confident. And at the funeral, he makes a joke about the senator doing requests directed towards Tolliver. And in this very issue, he mentions not only the type of gun that the senator had, but the fact that the barrel was bent by Spidey. He's putting it out on the table. In an interview, Peter David mentioned that he used Carter's dialogue to sway attention away. He had him talk in a certain pattern. He described it as Yiddish. David was also surprised that nobody picked up on it, that most people are surprised by this revelation. So here we are, we know who the senator is. But there are still so many questions. How does a former S.H.I.E.L.D. agent turn police detective turn into a homicidal monster? Well, those are some questions we're going to talk about next week. So there we are, we know who the killer is. Now, secondly, in this scene... We'll call it Daredevil v. Spider-Man, talking about Jablonski. Daredevil does not approve of Spider-Man's method. And for most of the reasons I've already said, it's taken the law into his own hands, it puts Jablonski's life at risk, and he did so for Spider-Man's own needs, that perfectionism to feed that. And while Daredevil means what he's saying, and he's even right to an extent... Daredevil is once again talking about the rules, the method. And Daredevil's always going to be a walking contradiction, a sneaky lawyer's trick, as I've called him time and time again. A lawyer who follows the rules, who works within the rules, and a vigilante who goes outside the rules, justified by Matt's own internal mechanisms. And of course, those internal mechanisms are the ability to sort of be an idealist, to whitewash things. And Spider-Man's more pragmatic. With Daredevil, there's a potential, there's a almost editing function in his own mind and his own perceptions because they are skewed, metaphorically and somewhat literally, where Spider-Man just sees things as they are. Again, we kind of mentioned this, Spider-Man and Daredevil first met. Peter was 15, 16, Matt was about 23, I'll put it. Now, using the Marvel 10-year sliding timeline in which everything takes place 10 years ago, Peter is now about 25, Matt's around 33. These are estimates, there's no specific age here. Let's talk about these characters. This is the big piece of the puzzle. There's always been an age difference of about eight years or so between these characters. So, going back to the original Daredevil number one, when Jack Murdoch is giving Matt the hit the book speech and making him make that promise, Peter was a newborn. And of course, we're speeding ahead to now. We have seasoned heroes. This is post-Gwen Stacy, post-Electra. They have different perspectives. And those perspectives are those of a 20-something in a 30-something, and as somebody who's closer to 40 than 30, I can tell you very clearly that my perspective on things, my opinions, my approach is very drastically different than I had 10 years ago. Yet despite this age difference, there's a very clear path of similarity between them. Both lost their mother and their father. For Peter, it was twice that he lost a father figure. Both had that support system in Aunt May and Foggy, respectively. Both began their superhero career as a sort of avenging act of that father figure. Both have these abilities that stem from radiation. Are they tied together through that? I don't know. That's a great fanfic idea. Both were bullied. Both have Kingpin as an enemy. However, the major differences here are the important parts. Spider-Man became a superhero as a kid in high school. I mean, he was still just trying to figure out who he is, what he wanted to do with life. At 15, I had no clue. I was more distracted by girls and comics and music. Conversely, Daredevil was an adult just out of college when he started his career as Daredevil and into his full-on career of a lawyer. What that means to me is that Matt was clearly defined when he became Daredevil. Now, of course, those definitions can change, but he was more mature, more focused, more aware of the world. He had developed this tight thought process going into the superhero game, plus a legal education. While Peter made it up as he went along, just trying to put the pieces together growing up as a superhero. 
and learning the life lessons that we all learn added to the fact that he's got to fight Vulture and try to figure out how to get home by curfew. The best visual I can give you on these two is that Matt is symphony music. It's defined, it's measured, it's structured. There is a set way to do a symphony from the way they're seated to the way the instruments are held and played to the way the audience experiences it. Peter is jazz. He's freeform. He's unique. He's experimental and not just a little rebellious. And here we have them where Peter has graduated college and his career is pending. Both have had ups and downs. They have some experience under their belts in contrast to what they had in Amazing Spider-Man number 16. And of course, those have similar experiences, yet they have different qualities, different approaches. They're not so far apart in age that they can't relate to one another, but there's a definite older brother mentality here. And a lot of that is put on the table here. Spider-Man being driven to the edge, being more emotionally invested, being more brash. Again, being jazz, he's making this up as he goes along, trying to put the pieces together and focus them on finding the Sin Eater. Matt, however, is looking at all the facts, progressing forward slowly, cautiously, trying to get to a logical conclusion. It's almost Kirk and Spock. And while this argument's going on, it suddenly dawns on Spider-Man that Jameson, who is the next target, is not at home, where Greg mentioned the kill was about to happen. However, Betty and Marla are at the house, all alone. And Spider-Man makes this frantic phone call trying to warn Betty, and just as he's talking to her, the Sin Eater shows up and opens fire. Holy crap, this is an intense ending. It's a bit repetitive. The previous issues have also ended with the Sin Eater arriving and shooting, but this time it's Betty Brandt. And the thing is, this ending was almost pulled because of that intensity because, well, people would be furious that Peter's first girlfriend would be killed off. But this final page is really convincing, especially since the last two endings of this type resulted in death. Add that to the idea that these two heroes have been too late in previous issues. Kind of an echoing theme with Rosenthal, with Gene. You kind of believe that this might be the final nail in the coffin. Now imagine, if you will, the idea that Peter is driven to the edge. He's on this precipice. He's teetering over it. He's pursuing this personal vendetta. He's gone from the heights of elation that he has stopped the Sin Eater. He's got it to find out not only that it wasn't the Sin Eater and the Sin Eater's still out there, but that the Sin Eater was somebody that Peter had grown to trust who was trying to help in this quest. Suffice it to say, Peter's not in a good place. And if Betty is to be killed, not only is that on his shoulders, in the general sense, it's yet again personal. It's somebody Peter has cared for for a long time in varying ways. As mentioned, she was his first girlfriend in the comic. She's been a co-worker, a good friend, almost a sister figure. I think that's pushing it a bit, but you get the idea. This is a moment that is in no way, shape, or form personal for Matt, though. And it's important to note that, because Matt has that professional detachment to these proceedings. Which doesn't entirely sit perfectly with me. Yes, Matt has an analytical nature. Matt is a lawyer. He goes through the facts. He goes through the details, the minutia of situations. He's a strategist. That's how he's been successful as a superhero. But at the same time, Matt is a human being. There is a swell of emotion. I've always looked at Matt as somebody who doesn't repress it, but he doesn't let his emotions overcome his logic very often. And the similarities and differences between these two characters are no clearer than in their romance departments. Again, we're looking at Peter's first love, possibly being torn apart by a shotgun blast if we're judging by the last panel here. Just a moment ago, she was standing in front of this chair that is now just being splayed all about, filling and leather going everywhere. 
Peter didn't hesitate. There was no fear, per se, in pursuing Betty. He did so willingly, eyes wide open. It didn't work out because of Spider-Man. And of course, that's never stopped him from trying. I can be Spider-Man, I can be Betty Brant's boyfriend. I can be Spider-Man and be Gwen Stacy's boyfriend. It doesn't work. I can be Spider-Man and Mary Jane Watson's boyfriend. Well, that one kind of stuck for the most part, but not without its scar tissue, that's for sure. Ask Mary Jane what she thinks of Venom sometimes, see how that goes. Matt, on the other hand, if we go back to the original issues, was always hesitant. Well, that's a nice way of putting it. Matt was reluctant, he was scared to engage in a relationship with Karen Page because of being a superhero. And of course, age changes people, and especially with these two characters, Peter was willing to reach out emotionally and give himself to a relationship to a greater or lesser extent. Again, there's conflict there, but he went in full bore. Matt has always been more cautious than curious. If he enters into this relationship with Karen, it could end badly because he's Daredevil. She could be hurt. He could be hurt. There could be emotional turmoil. Does he tell her his secret? Can she live with that? Will she accept him? Can he accept that she accepts him? All these questions go through Matt's head anytime you go back to these early issues of Daredevil. Even after he reveals the secret to Karen, he's reluctant to dive into the relationship. Where Peter keeps trying again and again and again. It's not that Matt doesn't have these emotions. Matt cared for Karen very, very much. It drove him insane that he couldn't reach out to her and just grab her and tell her he loves her and they get married and have a bunch of Murdoch babies. But that professional analytical mind of his stops it from happening. To him, it's all about the rules, right? The structure, the process. Which is both a sad bit of Daredevil, but also shows a certain degree of responsibility and maturity that Peter didn't possess at 15, and probably shouldn't in the real world. And yet, at this stage in the game, Gwen Stacy has been killed, Betty Brant's looking to be dead, Karen Page at this stage? Still out there somewhere, undefined. Oh, she'll come back. Most certainly. But at this stage, she's still a factor, where Gwen Stacy is buried six feet under. So that also puts in the idea of consequence. Yes, great power brings great responsibility, but pursuing that responsibility can bring great consequence. People can be hurt, killed, lives ruined, all because Peter took a path, a higher path admittedly, but a path of perfectionism that he can be Spider-Man and take on that responsibility and be Peter Parker and live a normal life at the same time. Likewise, Matt pushing Karen away consistently literally pushed her away. She went to Hollywood and she stayed gone for a long, long time. This led Matt to a world of loneliness. And yet Peter has a great supporting cast, Robbie Robertson. Betty is still in the picture. So while there are consequences to being a superhero that could hurt people, there are also a silver lining where Peter's not really lonely. He has people he can turn to. Multiple people on both sides of the equation, the superhero and the man. Daredevil's always had Foggy and people weave in and out of his life a little bit. But he doesn't have the same support system. He's lonely because of that structure. So let us not forget the consequences that every choice has a flip side, a potentially good and a potential damaging aspect. And while I've talked about the similarities and differences in these characters, the idea is there that they have a choice to pursue. They often choose differently with both positive and negative consequences, which means they're living a real life since we deal with that every day as human beings. But let's get to the final verdict on Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man issue 109. With this penultimate issue, 
we have learned the identity of the Sin Eater, which is something that's going to rock Spider-Man's world as it slowly sinks in that a lot of the stuff we've discussed has been right in front of his face. And let's not forget the fact that Betty Brant looks pretty destined for a coffin with Jean. It's a character that's been around for a while, a good long while, but Betty... She stems from the very earliest issues, Ditko and Lee. There's a very deep personal connection, and this ending has a punch to the face we haven't had yet in this storyline. Of course, Peter David lets his tail breathe, and sure, this could have been condensed. It could have been abbreviated. But that wouldn't have worked, because this tale is a pressure cooker. The last two issues, we've had a setup in 107, we've had the pressure building in 108 and the first part of 109, and now the sh** is hitting the fan. Now, Daredevil plays a bit more of a role here than we've had in the last two issues, and of course he's going to come back next issue and become very relevant. And of course we've begun to see the divergent nature of these characters. What makes them different? Why are they pitted against each other even though they're on the same side and looking for the same thing? With Spider-Man's path, we see his faith and resolve slowly eroding, and that emotional core is a boiling hot magma. And this is leading to this snapping point. You know it's coming, you feel it, and now you know why it's coming. The potential death of Betty Brant, that's the moment Spider-Man's gonna lose his Now, Daredevil's path, he's been hesitant. He's unsure of how to feel or what to do. And yes, he has that method and that system, but really what he's struggling with is how does it apply here? That's why he's looking at places, much like Spider-Man, that don't necessarily work for what they're looking for. Why go to the Kingpin? Why go to Josie's bar? It seems clear that this guy is working alone. And this divergent path shows very brightly and extremely in the two heroes' approach to questioning. Spider-Man barging in, guns blazing, Daredevil slow, steady, and controlled. Again, Sin Eater's just not a standard villain. It's not a standard plot. He's not Dr. Octopus creating something to take over the city and make millions. No, he's just killing people callously and a very odd set of somewhat conflicting targets. Again, the question comes back, how does a former S.H.I.E.L.D. agent and police detective become something like this? The biggest impact of this issue is that it leaves you with that question. Now think about this, in real time you have 30 days between this issue and the next. This would be a nail-biter. Imagine waiting a month to find Betty's fate, and I'm sure there are people out there who did wait that month. This would be a lot of conversation, a lot of shock. Wondering if this is a trick. And of course the dangling threads are well seated. Even though we're given an answer, we don't want to believe it. We think there's going to be an M. Night Shyamalan type twist. Art-wise, Buckler seems on form. There's no real standout moments in the art beyond the cover. Breeding is adding the right amount of grit to the camera lens. And we get that impression of a police procedural drama rather than a superhero story. And Peter David, for being as early in the writing career as he is, is also balancing the characters in play, giving us a reminder of our suspects right up front, and he even threw in a very convincing red herring. No, it may not be a pure superhero tale, but that's what has allowed this story to work so far, and the conclusion, well, you gotta expect it's going to be explosive. And I believe those expectations will be rewarded, but we're not getting to that until next week. For now, though, I'm gonna take a break, I'm gonna play a quick promo for a podcast, and I will be right back. Sawete. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters 
and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spalai, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Batgirl Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Batgirl run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Batgirl Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Bats lovers. As advertised, I have returned, and sadly, I have no email. So please, if you will, if you're liking this, or if you're not liking it, let me know. Let me know your thoughts on the storyline. Drop me a line at mail at daredevilpodcast.com. I would also ask that you leave a review on iTunes. Now, this begs a little clarification. If you're on iTunes currently, you will notice that there are two feeds for the show. One is Dave's Daredevil Podcast. One is Two True Freaks Presents Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Now, originally moving over to Two True Freaks, I thought it would be easy to align these two, and it turns out that wasn't the case. However, I promised you, you would not have to move. And for the time being, that is absolutely true. Both feeds will be updated, and they're both pulling from Two True Freaks. However, I'm going to keep that promise until episode 100. So if you are subscribed currently to the feed that is simply Dave's Daredevil Podcast, at your own leisure, again, we have months until episode 100, unsubscribe from that and subscribe to the Two True Freaks Presents Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Again, both feeds are going to be updated until episode 100, which is April of next year of 2016. But do both steps. Unsubscribe from one, subscribe to the other. First of all, you don't want doubles of each episode each week. There's no need to take up that space on your MP3 player. Secondly, though, if you're subscribed to both, what it really does is it just doubles up on the stats, which unfairly inflates them. And while I like seeing those numbers, I use the stats to sort of gauge audience reaction. If an episode gets more downloads than normal, I know where the audience is. I know what they're wanting from the show. Likewise, if the stats drop for a particular episode, I know the audience really isn't into that topic. So please do both. Unsubscribe from one, subscribe to the other, sometime over the next few months. I will remind you again and again. Not quite as much as when I did the move to Two True Freaks, but it'll be there. Of course, next week we're coming back for the spectacular Spider-Man number 110, the finale of Gene DeWolf. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks network of podcasts. You can find the show's home at twotruefreaks.com. Also, choose to like the network on Facebook. Simply search for Two True Freaks. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash daveweeder, and you can email the show. The address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right, simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf. And you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. 
It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and keep the lights on at 2TrueFreaks at the same time. What a deal. Daredevil and all related characters are copyright Marvel Entertainment Group. All rights reserved. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not draw profit from the references to the characters herein. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes. All rights lie with the copyright holder. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a production of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Until next time, I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.